Welcome to Emerging Cricket Rewind, a retrospective series where we look back at some of the great moments in emerging cricket history. This time, we're travelling back to the 2003 Cricket World Cup in South Africa and exploring the background, performances, highlights and lasting impact of Namibia's first and so far only appearance at a major ICC event. In 2003, Namibia made it to South Africa after a strong performance in the qualifying tournament, the 2001 ICC Trophy in Toronto. The captain of the side in Canada was Dani Kielder, while Dion Kotzer led the team in the World Cup. At the time, they worked together running a cricket academy, and the pair have remained friends. Emerging Cricket was lucky enough to chat with the both of them about their experiences almost 20 years ago. Hi Nick, uh, Dion here. We are, I'm sitting here with Danny Kilder, so I think it'll be great if he helps me. As I said, it, it was 17 years ago, so memories are not quite what they should be anymore. Hi, Nick. Just so that you know, um, I will be the one talking sense and you're the one talking nonsense. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. For current men's captain, Gerrit Erasmus, one of his earliest memories in cricket is seeing the team leaving for Toronto in 2001. Yeah, my memories of the time really go back to the qualifier. Um, when they held the qualifier in Canada, um, I remember my father was the manager at the time of the Namibia national team. So when they went over to Canada, they didn't know really what to expect because at the time they didn't travel that much. So going to a place that's a bit foreign <laughs> and yeah, it was such a cool build up for them and for a bunch of guys to do it. And um, obviously I, I got into touch with a lot of the players because of my father's connection as manager. Um, and that, that obviously inspired me when they started winning cricket games. But for Kotsa, the story actually starts four years earlier in Kuala Lumpur. I think the whole process started in 1997 when we played in the qualifying tournament in Malaysia, where, quite frankly, it was actually quite embarrassing from a Namibian cricket point of view. You know, we, we finished 13th out of, I think, something like 17 teams or something. And um, I think a lot of us younger guys then just sort of committed and, and said to ourselves that that's just not the level that we want to play cricket at. You know, we want to do better. And if, if that's how we're going to play, then we're not going to bother. So I think that was the start of it all. Um, and how we got motivated. I think in 1997, Lenny Lowe wasn't in Namibia. He'd moved to Cape Town for a while. And then by 2001, Lenny was back in Namibia and, and became a very big driving force as well in the preparations and the motivation for that 2001 tournament. A veteran left-arm spinner with over 25 years of experience in Namibia and South Africa, 42-year-old Lenny Lowe was the senior figure in a relatively young team. He came on board as a player coach for the 2001 qualifier and led by example with ball in hand, sending down the most overs at the best economy rate among the Namibian bowlers. Looking back, he highlights the growing team spirit as a key factor in their much improved showing. We really built something special in terms of team culture in the, the leader process, um, firstly to the qualifying tournament. Uh, we almost had an old school approach to the way we did things. It was a very strong belief that we could qualify for the World Cup. We also realized that we actually had to defy the odds and, and play one level higher up than we've ever done before. And we worked hard and there was a lot of belief, a lot of trust in, in, in the leadership of the, of the team. As well as on-field embarrassment, 
including the nadir of a 105-run defeat to Fiji, where they were bowled out for 73, the disastrous 1997 campaign had left Namibia at the back of the pack for 2001, with little margin for error as they were seeded into the second tier of the competition. We knew going in, because of our ranking coming out of the, the tournament in Malaysia in 97, we were ranked in the B section, if I remember correctly, of the 2001 tournament, which basically meant we had to win something like 13 games in a row. We couldn't lose a game, and we knew that. And actually, to a large extent, that took all the pressure off. In addition to being bolstered by low, Namibia looked to get some quality match practice. And for that, they turned to their neighbours, South Africa. Yeah, I think Dion sort of set the background there. And, and, and I think what helped us uh, leading up to the tournament is that we played in the, the, bowl. the bowl section of, of the South African Cricket Association. So for us, it was, you know, sort of playing competitive cricket for three years nonstop and ending up being very, very competitive in that league. So having been exposed to competitive cricket for quite a while, we were silently very confident that we can be very competitive during that 2001 tournament. Despite the good build-up though, there were still some jitters in the camp, especially as they looked ahead to the crucial clash with Italy. But Namibia were about to receive a stroke of good fortune. Going into the tournament, confidence, as Dani mentioned, yes, we were quite confident because of the level of cricket that we'd been playing at regularly. But I also, it springs to mind here you know, that confidence was, was such a frail thing at that stage. You know, but to come back to the, the thought I had about um, confidence being so low, there was a guy I remember quite well. We were all very nervous about a guy called Joe Scuderi, who at that stage was an English pro playing in, the, in I think, for Lancashire or someone in the county league, came from Australia originally. And Italy withdrew from the tournament right uh, literally a day or two before because ICC had refused to allow Joe Scuderi to play. But you know we were all incredibly nervous of how it was going to go playing against this guy. And it just shows you uh, sort of how frail confidence was, even though we felt we were quite well prepared. In addition to Italy's withdrawal, the West African composite side also pulled out on the eve of the tournament after their players were denied entry by Canadian immigration officials. This left Namibia just three group matches against Germany, Nepal and Gibraltar, all of which they won handily to set up a knockout clash against Bermuda, who were the fourth-ranked side in their Division A pool. Going through the group stages, if you like, were, I think I'd be fair in saying, relatively easy. And the longer the tournament carried on in Toronto, it was quite hot, I remember. Mm. And the pitches became slower and slower and, and took more and more turn. And we had three fairly decent spinners in our side. And that definitely the pitches started playing into our hands the longer the tournament went on. So by the time, so uh, Dani can maybe run you through a little bit of the thoughts about the actual Bermuda game, which was a crunch game that meant we actually carried on and qualified for the Super League yeah I think that was sort of the first well every game was a crunch game but that obviously was a was you know getting up to the Super Series if you want to call it that so yeah having scored 221 which at that stage you know any, any, anything above 180 was quite competitive and we were you know sort of quite confident that we can defend that which we did I think Bermuda got 145 or something and that was quite a big win for us you know, if you take the 75 win run uh, for playoff is, is quite substantial so we were very confident and even more confident you know having qualified for the Super Series. As momentum grew on the field so too did motivation off it with Namibia determined to keep extending their stay in Canada, defying their ranking from the previous event and the apparent expectations of the tournament organisers. 
Just to give you a little bit of background on the on the team spirit that was developing in the team, we got into a situation where I think it was probably three times during the tournament we'd come home after a game in the evening, and obviously ICC had made their predictions of you know what teams were going to progress, etc. And at least on three occasions we'd come home to the hotel in the evenings, only to find that our room keys, um, you know, the access where the room keys had been cancelled. And when the manager went down to reception to check what had happened, we'd actually been booked out of the hotel simply because whoever had made the bookings had predicted that by then Namibia would be out and on their way home. The team manager at the event, Francois Erasmus, recalls the incident well. I can so clearly remember when, after the first round, when our guys got back to the hotel having won every match until then, the electronic keys were not functioning. And everybody ran back to the manager and I ran back to the reception saying, there's a problem, can we please have these keys replaced? And we were told, but your rooms were cancelled because you were basically, you are heading home tonight on the first flight out. I said, why? Because now you would, you and the other teams not qualifying for the Super 8 stage would be off tonight. And I said, but you may have done well to look at the log because we are in fact in the Super 8 and we need our rooms for a while further. And it was just, I think, typical of the situation which we found ourselves in as Namibia at that stage. We haven't probably deserved to have any better reputation in the international cricket world at that stage because we had lost on occasions where we were ranked to win but didn't perform. As well as their accommodation, the team also found themselves motivated by the transport at the event. It happened about three times and things like that became major motivation for the team. Another issue was the team buses, where originally all the teams were traveling in the, the normal yellow school buses that you find in the, in the States and in Canada. And I, I seem to recall that maybe some of the top teams were actually traveling in proper luxury coaches. And that became one of the motivations for the guys was to say, you know, we want to travel in one of those coaches to the games, which eventually happened. When we all walked down the first morning of the first match, every team had its yellow school bus. And the transport manager got onto every bus and told us and probably all the other teams, he said, listen, this is where you're going to start, in this yellow school bus, and you're going to hop along to the municipal grounds where you will be playing. But I promise you, reach the top eight and you'll get a proper air-conditioned bus. And he said, added to that, Get to the semi-finals and the final, and I promise you a bus which will have air conditioning, TV, and fridges with cold water and juice in for you. And for the first six or seven or eight games, we traveled in the yellow school bus to every venue and reached the top eight or the super eight stage, received our air-conditioned bus with ample space and ample packing and storage space for all the kids and eventually received our bus with a TV and little fridges in for drinks when we reached the final against the Netherlands. So that in itself was like, you know, managing your progress by way of the quality of your transport. It was simply magnificent to see also in that how the players grew in stature, you know, taking off that morning on the way to the semi-final or to the quarterfinals in the Super 8 stage. It was as if they had grown quite a bit from two or three weeks before that when we arrived in Toronto. Yeah, we'd worked our way out of um, being booked out of the hotel every second day and out of the school buses into the proper coaches. So by the time 
we got to games like Canada and those sort of games, there was actually no pressure on us. We, I genuinely recall that we felt no pressure. We just, we were just enjoying it and we'd found ways of motivating ourselves just to say, listen, we're here and we, we've got our own motivation for carrying on. To help feel comfortable during a three-week campaign on the other side of the world, the Namibians brought a little slice of home to their hotel room on the advice of a man who had come to be revered in associate cricket circles. We set up a team room in the hotel in Canada, mostly on the advice of Bob Woolmer, who I I sat for hours and who gave me advice on what it would take for us as a bunch of total amateurs. And Bob gave very, very helpful and solid tips. So we set up this team room in Toronto in our hotel. And um, in that team room, we we did what we, as we were at home. Bob advised us and we did bring to Toronto our own brand of coffee, which we liked, the brand of tea, which the guys drank back home, the jelly babies for energy, which they were used to, the music, which the guys knew and were comfortable with and everything like that. Magazines from home. We set up a, a laptop and every player could come and sit in that lounge area and send emails in reply to the thousands of emails we got from back home. Having now progressed to the Super League, Namibia would have to lift their game, with eight teams competing for just two guaranteed spots in the World Cup. Their first encounter was a close tussle with the hosts Canada. The Canadians battled to a competitive total of 189 before John Davison's offspin put the squeeze on to have Namibia 5 for 59. Fortunately for the Africans, Melt van Schoor came to the rescue. Canada was obviously was a was a tough game. They've always been a tough game. They had very good players. I'm I'm thinking about John Davidson, uh, John Davidson and specifically Ian was Boltliff. a Ian Boltliff, um two Aussie pros. Yeah, they two Aussie pros and and and, and Davidson was a, a great off spinner and he could hit the ball for quite a mile. I think he scored a hundred in the World Cup against the West Indies. So we were always up against it. It was their home ground. And as I said again, you know, having to score a hundred and ninety to win a game in, in that conditions was very, very tricky. But again just a, a show of, you know, how we as a team and everyone believed in themselves. I think that was the key there. I think what I need to mention here is going through the tournament, there wasn't one guy that got man of the match every game. We weren't dependent on one guy. It was an absolute team effort, and you can see that in all the man of the matches, that every time it was someone else. And I think during that, um, especially the Canada game as well, you could see that, you know, Melt coming in at six, being a wicketkeeper, scoring 68, not under pressure. Louis coming in at seven, scoring a 20-odd vital runs. Bones at number nine. Beyond Kotsa, he scored a 17 or something. So everyone sort of put up their hand in the, in the crisis situations. And I think that is what took us through. Two big wins against the UAE and pre-tournament favourites the Netherlands left Namibia riding the wave and set up a clash on the final day of group matches against 1999 World Cup participants Scotland with everything to play for and a place at the Cricket World Cup on the line. Leading from the front, Danny Kilda struck 104 to get his side to 256 for 6 off their 50 overs, almost the highest score of the tournament and an excellent effort on the wearing surface. In response though, half-centuries to Colin Smith and Drew Parsons had Scotland cruising just 32 runs away from victory, with 6 wickets in hand and plenty of deliveries to go. With the match slipping away, Namibia needed something special, and it was young fast bowler Burton van Roy who turned the tide. Scotland was a totally different <laughs> different kettle of fish. I mean, that was make or break. That was the crunch game. That's the automatic qualification. And once again, you know, Burton van Roy, the way he put up his hand, um, takes 6-4. But that was fantastic. And I mean, it's just the, the belief. Because they had a big partnership and they were cruising it. And then all of a sudden, Burton came back and sort out. of, yeah, there was a run out as well. And 
and yeah, I think we just pulled together as a team from there on. Yeah, so by the time we'd, um, obviously, as Danny said, that was automatic qualification. And uh, that I think that was probably the only game where we really felt pressure was mm. because suddenly this had become quite real from having actually realistically no chance to being in a situation where you're playing for a spot in the World Cup. It was probably the only game where we did feel a bit of pressure, but we performed. What Dani forgets to mention is his own 100 in that game. And then, yes, brilliant fielding on a very, very difficult outfield, which by then in that hot summer had not been watered, obviously, for probably the better part of a month or two. It had these huge cracks in the outfield. So... Brilliant fielding performance and then Dani's 100 in the first innings and then a guy like Burton who was, in, I think Burton was probably only about 19 mm. years old at that stage. And it was almost this last throw of the dice for Dani to throw him the ball and just say, Burton, let's see what you can do. They were really cruising it. If I remember correctly, they probably only needed about 30 odd with just four wickets down. And then it just became the Fun Roy show where this young kid just ran in and literally ran through Scotland. Those last six wickets fell for, I think, about 20 runs or so. Watching from the sidelines, Francois Erasmus was enthralled by the young bowler's spell. Probably 60, 70 runs short of the target. Dion Kotze turned to a young chap, Burton van Roy, who was in the team. He was 19 years old, inexperienced, but massively talented. He could bowl. He was a middle-order batter, and he fielded like John T. Rhodes in the covers and anywhere. And he struck wickets frequently when throwing back from wherever he was fielding. Burton at that stage was the first bowler in Namibia and in many, I think in many parts of the associate world who was willing to bowl slower balls and back of the hand and balls that other bowlers at that stage were simply just not bowling. And I think in desperation, Dion chucked the ball to Burton and said, listen bud, see what you can do and don't hesitate to bowl any funny stuff because we need something funny to happen here if we're going to win this game. In event, it's history. Burton took the ball and ended with something ridiculous like 6 for 42. Bowled Scotland out and really devastated them. Scotland did indeed lose their last six wickets for 22 runs, with Burton van Roy taking five to end on 6 for 43, including a team hat-trick in the 49th over to close out the match, with Lenny Lowe running out James Brinkley. It was an inspired spell of bowling, and van Roy's heroics were followed with keen interest back home as men's captain Gerrit Erasmus and current ladies player Irene van Sale both remember. Yeah, so I still remember the time very well. That as a seven or eight-year-old, we had limited internet, but Greek um, Info back then updated every, I think it was end of over, or maybe even every, every five overs. So my mother and I worked on the computer to uh, see what each result was every day. The memory that stood out for me actually was the way that Namibia qualified for the World Cup. I can remember we were actually visiting Lenny Lowe's wife one evening and we watched the live scores on Creek Info, I think. And it was quite a memorable, joyous occasion actually when we saw that the, the last wicket had fallen. I think it was Burton van Roy who took the last wicket and, and, and helped Namibia qualify for the World Cup. Everyone was just going crazy and celebrating uh, for what the men had achieved. So that's definitely something that still stands out for me. Having secured qualification, Namibia were also into the final, where they stumbled for the first time in the tournament, with an agonising last ball defeat to the Netherlands, losing by two wickets on the last ball of the match. But they were into the World Cup, and despite it being very much a team effort, there were some standout individual performances, including Burton van Roy's 19 wickets for the tournament, and Dani Kilder topping the run charts. For Gerrit Erasmus and everyone back home, it was the culmination of several years' hard work. 
the way they qualified in 2002 was just because of their team culture, what they had created for themselves. And to go to the 2003 World Cup was really a celebration of what they had done for a year or two or a good period of time. With 18 months between the triumph in Canada and their first appearance on the big stage, the next challenge for Namibia was keeping sharp in the intervening time. They did this as best they could, looking once again to neighbours South Africa, but the team was under no illusions about what awaited them at the main event. Until then, as Dani mentioned earlier, we'd been playing in the B section of South African domestic cricket, which was at that stage known as the bowl competition. After our qualification, and in other words, into the 2002 season, we were allowed into the actual um, one-day first-class competition in South Africa, um, where we were then playing against the full A teams of the provinces, like Western Province and Gauteng, whatever they were called at that stage. We were playing against all their proper first teams. Obviously, that helped in a large degree, but I think if you looked at it closely, you'd see it, it probably amounted to about five, maybe six games that we played. So to be perfectly honest, absolutely nothing could prepare you, not just for the pace, but just the class and the level that you were going to be exposed to in people like um, Wazim Akram, Brett Lee, Shari Bakhtar, Zahir Khan, I mean, just to name a few, that's just the bowlers. And then obviously, you know, we were suddenly up against the best batsmen in the world at the time. So while certainly we did everything we could do, um, and we had Bob Woolmer at that stage was still closely involved with associate cricket as well, so he was helping. I know he brought out a Pakistan B team um, before the tournament. So as much as we could do, we certainly did. But you know, to be honest, you have to probably play at that level consistently for a good number of years to feel that you are in any way able to compete and perform. So I don't think anything could have really prepared us for what we ran into. Behind the scenes... Namibia and the other qualifying associates had a great ally in Woolmer, who took his role as the ICC's first high-performance manager very seriously in helping them to prepare. Certainly the period uh, 2000 to 2003 was a very exciting time for Namibian cricket and also for, I think, associate cricket worldwide. For us, uh, we knew that if we were able to qualify in 2001 for the World Cup, it would be a very exciting time for us uh, as Namibian cricket. And you mentioned the name of, of Bob Woolmer. He certainly played a big role in assisting us, assisting Namibia cricket. He was very closely involved for quite a period where he made a very good impression on all of us. He also played a big role in organising a high-performance tournament for the qualifying teams, the teams, uh, the associate teams that qualified for the World Cup. So we all have very fond memories of, of Bob. He was probably way ahead of his time in terms of innovative thinking. At that stage, he was already demonstrating and talking about lap shots, reverse sweeps, etc., which, uh, you know, those ideas were great at that stage, but we were probably technically not good enough to really implement them. Um, but certainly Bob was very innovative also in terms of involving psychologists, uh, eye doctors, etc. in the game to help us prepare for the, for the World Cup. Woolmer's county connections also provided Namibia with their first full-time coach, a Scottish all-rounder with ODI experience for England called Dougie Brown. Now with the Karachi Kings in the PSL, in 2003, Brown was just starting his journey in the world of coaching and relished the challenge of working with Namibia's ragtag group of cricketers. First of all, it was all done through Bob Woolmer, who was uh, my coach at Warwickshire for eight years. Uh, He was at this stage the high-performance manager of the ICC. His responsibility was to develop the growth of the game in the associates, uh, of which obviously Namibia were one of the associates who had just done incredibly well and qualified for the the World Cup in 2003. So, you know, as a young coach, 
making my way in the game, although I wasn't actually coaching at that stage, I was still playing, still very much playing. Um, you know, it was a great opportunity to take a, a relatively inexperienced side, say in, relatively inexperienced side, a side who were made up of everything but professional cricketers, school teachers, there was police officers, there were investment bankers, there were hunters, uh, there were students, uh, and actually trying to create something pretty special with regards to a sort of identity and culture and behavioural aspect of what sort of brought them together. And, you know, it was, it was really exciting for me. You know, that was what I knew, that was what Bob was very good at doing, you know, bringing like-minded people together and giving them something to, to work towards. And that was what we kind of tried to, tried to do. Ready or not, though, just being there felt like a win shared by everyone in the tight-knit Namibian community, like current players Irene Fonsale and Stefan Bard. So it's always quite special to see a team of your country represent the country at a, or a spectacular event like the World Cup. It doesn't matter which sport it is, and even to have seen it broadcast on TV was quite something special. It, uh, it always brings people together in some way, and, you know, everybody celebrates. It doesn't even mean if, if you watch cricket or you know cricket, but somehow people People still stick to the TV and follow the guys. Um, I actually knew quite a few of them pretty well. In fact, Dion Kotsa and Dani Kilder were my coaches when they started with their academy in Namibia while I was actually still in primary school. So I got to know them quite well. Like I said, Lenny Lowe, my parents were sort of house friends with them. I knew their son, who was also playing cricket at that time. So there was quite a few guys, Stefan Swanepoel, uh, Meld van Skoer. Um, and as you say, yeah, Namibia is quite a close community so it's not difficult to, to rub shoulders with these guys. Jan Berry Berger, I actually played some cricket against his sister when I was in, in, in high school. The city where they lived in the country, a small city actually, um, we used to have two teams playing, school teams playing, and, and JB's uh, sister was also playing. So in, in that way, you always sort of get into contact with people and you get to know them, um, follow them. Um, when Namibia used to play games before the World Cup um, preparation games, and you would flock to the grounds and um, obviously everybody was there uh, so that's how you you get to know some of these guys it was massive for us as a, as a cricketing community you know like a uh, few of the boys that played in that World Cup, I still ended up playing with in my career. Guys like uh, Bjorn Kortse, Sorrel Berger, played a few games with Louis Berger as well, Harry Sneeman. So for me, and at that stage of my, when I was a kid, some of those guys were coaching me as well. You know, guys like Bjorn Kortse and uh, Lenny Lowe. And, you know, for me, it was it was so cool to see these guys. Despite not hosting any of the actual Cricket World Cup matches, the practice matches held in Vintuk brought a flavour of the event to Namibia and made quite an impact on a young bard. It kind of felt because Bangladesh and New Zealand came uh, to it in Namibia just before the World Cup, you know, for a few series and warm-up games. And that for for the cricket community, I remember back then, was massive. So also, it also felt like part of the World Cup. Because, you know, as a kid, I remember guys like Daniel Vittori, Shane Bond, Daryl Tuffy, Brendan McCullum rocking up in Namibia where we've never seen that before. The same with... At that stage, stage where guys like Mohammed Ashrafal and so and players like that um, turning up for for Bangladesh, and as the World Cup drew closer, excitement was building in Namibia for a major world event being hosted in their backyard in Africa. Obviously, yes, there was quite a, a lot of hype about it in Namibia, and when I say a lot of hype, as much as there could be in a in a community as small as ours, but there you know there was a lot of um, hype about and people who were certainly um, there and supporting us. We, we were actually 
Well, hoping it would not be in South Africa, because we have been playing so much in South Africa, we wanted actually to play, say, for instance, in the West Indies or in Australia, for that matter. But having played, you know, so much in South Africa, it obviously did, uh, it was better for us to know the conditions that we were going to play under. Yeah, it was certainly a very proud moment for all of us to be playing in the World Cup as an African team. I think all of us will remember that opening ceremony where we walked around the field and you got that special feeling that you, as a, an African team, you were part of something very special. And uh, yeah, still till today, we, we, we still remember that. We still remember the, the pride, the, the honor of just being involved in such a, a very special occasion. I totally agree with you there. Was, there was a real African feeling to it, even though if you watch the highlights um, back from 2003, even the introductory, you know, they, they have like this introduction before the games and it's the, the World Cup introduction song and all that and it gives you that whole South African or African feeling. And I think that was pretty cool as well, you know, considering that when we went to South Africa to watch it, it wasn't that far. It felt like home. Next time on EC Rewind, we delve into the first half of Namibia's World Cup campaign. When they debuted against Zimbabwe on a dramatic day in Harare, they faced the express pace of Pakistan's Shoaib Akhtar, and they took on England in one of the event's most memorable encounters. This Rewind podcast is a production of Emerging Cricket. Written, hosted and edited by Nick Skinner. Special thanks go to the ICC and Rob Moody, also known as Robolinda, for the archival audio, as well as Dougie Brown and all the Namibians who kindly shared their recollections. Dion Kotzer, Dani Kilder, Francois Erasmus, Lenny Lowe, Irene Fonseil, Herod Erasmus and Stefan Bard. For more leading coverage of the game outside its traditional centres, head to EmergingCricket.com or subscribe to the weekly Emerging Cricket podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to chip in to support us financially in producing more high-quality content, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash emergingcricket. That's patron, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash emergingcricket.